Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. And on this particular episode, hello, Barry, to you, by the way. Hello, sir. How are you today? We have a fine, fine episode. Yeah, you know, sometimes I always say, you know, it's a fine, uh, fun-filled episode, a jam-packed episode. You know, Barry, what I've never done in 219 episodes? Uh, I have never sat there and said, welcome to a essentially an average episode of Breaking Hit or, or a below average episode, or even a, boy, is this episode a shit show, but you people are going to fucking have to listen to it anyway. No, I haven't done that yet, and I'm not doing it today. This is another fun-filled, jam-packed episode, Barry. Are you ready to go? Jeff, do you know there's a podcast out there that every co-host is a popular co-host? Have you ever heard of this With show? With me is my popular co-host, Barry Rose. There you go. <laughs> my popular co-host who, by the way, did that show recently, didn't fucking tell me about it, but oh, I digress. Sorry. Yeah, so, it yeah. was actually, we we actually had a good time. and uh, No bonus for you this month, Mr. What? Damn, and it's the holiday season, Jeff. I said it, I've got to make a stand. Okay, on this particular episode. We are going back to the rings of the All Japan Women as we are talking about the jumping bomb angels, Norio Titano and Itsuki Yamazaki, taking on, oh, my baby. Oh, Vandal Drummond, you're going to be upset about this, my baby. Bull Nakano and her partner, the incredibly, incredibly underrated Condor Saito. We're going January 1986, and holy shit, it's a good match. Besides that, Barry and I are going to be looking at two shows on Netflix that we are recommending strongly to you, the listener, to watch. Take a little bit of time, not a long time, a little bit of time from listening to Breaking Cave with Adam and Barry and listen and watch these two fine shows on Netflix. We're going to discuss that. Uh, We got a couple other things we want to discuss, but, oh, Barry, you know the one thing that fans really love that you and I do more than anything? It, the talk about uh, penises and no, 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 it's not not talk about you Farts, shitting up shit. lawns. All no. right, it's not even talk about you eating pasta. It's not uh, me talking about uh, fucking Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame. It's not the frustration I feel with the Vikings uh, having yet another game decided by one fucking touchdown because our our fucking coach is up twenty nine to nothing and decides to take his foot off the gas. Fucking Mike Zimmer. Promise that rain. <laughs> But what people like more than anything from us, Barry, is when you and I <laughs> go on a good rant. Are you ready to go on a good rant, Barry? Because I'm going to throw a name out there, and you and I are going to get fired up, and we're going to verbally eviscerate that fucking piece of shit, Hannibal. Oh, shit. All right, let me sit down and let me strap in. Let me buckle up. All right, Jeff, you want to lead this? So, first of all, let me just say this. And I'm going to be, I'll be nice to start, okay? If any of you listeners out there who listen to this fine podcast, if any of you watch Hannibal's videos, click on his videos, like his videos, I'm just going to recommend that you stop listening to our show. I'm going to recommend that you stop listening to, let's see, John McAdams' show, uh, Brian's shows, Jimmy Cornette's shows, any fucking Arcadian shows. Stop listening to them. Because we, I don't think, want you as a listener. I can't believe I'm saying that, Barry, but I'm going to say it. Because if you are a fan of this piece of shit, this human garbage disposal known as Hannibal, I got no time for you. And I don't think anybody else, I'm going to go on a limb and say that, Barry, that anybody else in this uh, network has time for you. Because this piece of shit that goes into business for himself and fucking carves up somebody, videos out there available on the uh, the YouTube. But... 
If you're going to watch on YouTube or on Twitter or on Facebook, don't go to fucking Hannibal's page and say, ooh, let me click on this. Because what you're doing then is you're feeding into what he wants you to do. Barry, this fucker, goes into business for himself and carves up some fucking schmo referee who I don't know, so I apologize for calling him a schmo referee. I don't know this guy from Adam. And, you know, all of a sudden, this guy, uh, Hannibal, goes into business fucking carving himself up this piece of shit that can't get a job in the business and has nobody else to blame but himself. Oh, so, Jeff, when I saw this, too, and I, I want to actually I want to give credit to Joe Dombrowski, Joe sending me the links. And this was the first I heard about it today. It actually. Joe. You know that was fucking pass interference on the Tampa Bay guy. And they should <laughs> no no. And they should not have called pass interference on the Buffalo guy. That's a little <laughs> private joke between me and Joe. Please Barry, continue. I like it, but Joe notifying me this, and then today it's all over social media and it's all a well. So why why don't we kind of look at this as well? And obviously, if you've listened to this fine Arcadian Vanguard podcast over time, we were the first of any of the Arcadian Vanguard shows to rip apart Hannibal. We don't just rip apart Hannibal for being a really shitty human being, which he is. We've also completely ripped on him for being a horrible interviewer and broadcaster. And certainly he has sued Abdul the Butcher for hepatitis. He's done a lot, but Hannibal is a worker. Hannibal is, uh, and he's not a successful worker. We're talking as low rent. He's a, I remember years ago, Jeff, where you, uh, you referred to someone who was, licking the butthole of Dave Meltzer a lot. And you referred to this person as a remora, the remora being the little fish that eats the leftovers that are always right next to the sharks. So uh, I can't believe I would have said that. I'm usually so nice. Yeah, but Hannibal is a true piece of shit. Hannibal is, I, I would say a remora is just an innocent little fish just there to get, you know, he is a bottom feeder. He is the the scummy that eats the shit off the bottom. He's a low life. He's a scumbag. Would you call him a a maggot? He's no, because at that point I expect maggots to be knocking at my door because they're pissed off. They're pissed off. Well, exactly right. My, my rent's going up by the way. So with that Hannibal was apparently under the influence of something. I will say he was probably drunk. I have heard it said multiple times that Hannibal is an okay guy. And and I got to say the people who have said this aren't the most stand-up people, but what they would say is Hannibal is an all right guy until he starts drinking and then he becomes a belligerent cocky asshole. And I think we should say Hannibal's a tough guy in a sense. Look, he's, he could take us out with one single punch, but that doesn't uh, detract or defer from what, what happened this past weekend. Apparently went into business for himself took a spike, which I believe is one of Kevin Sullivan's golden spikes, and then started to drill a referee in the head. Photos were posted of the referee's head, which is looks like uh, a few dozen staples in various spots all over his head. He showed photos of the pillow where he had been laying, and a GoFundMe has been set up. Also, according to the story at this point, the police were called. A police report has been filed where to start. So with that, Hannibal is the ultimate worker. Hannibal was the same guy that was essentially orchestrating and working this whole thing with Billy Jack Haynes two, three years ago about shoot fighting and all that, but they were doing this all together. I do not believe that he worked something out with the referee. I'm assuming a referee where there's 50 people in the crowd, I'm assuming he's making $25, $30. I can't see him making much more than that. 
But I could see Hannibal trying to work this for himself and get him back out there. And the reason I say that, the last few months, there has been no talk of Hannibal. His interviews, anything he's done, nobody's paying attention. We knew this was going to come. The guy has zero talent as an interviewer. He pays to get people to talk to him, Jeff. Jeff, how many times have we paid? Why don't we talk about Dory, former World's Heavyweight Champion Dory Funk Jr., Greg Gagne, two and a half hours, Bob Roop, Butch Reed, Stan Hansen, Stan fucking Hansen, Jeff. We have had somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 guests, Jeff. How many of those guests have we paid for? Hold on. <clears throat> Let me do that. One, two. I'm doing a quick math here, Barry. Uh, one, uh, zero. Zero, ladies and gentlemen. We have never paid a guest. We have lost people who have uh, we have offered to come on, and they say, how much do I get paid? And we say, well, actually, we don't, we don't actually pay our guests with that but it's because we don't we generally accept a patreon we're not you know it's not like we're rolling in dough but at the same time people will talk to hannibal because he's paying them and look guys like ron fuller have done a shoot interview robert fuller with hannibal uh a lot of big names have they've done it they're not aware of who he is all they know is this guy hannibal comes forth offers four or five hundred dollars and we'll do a shoot interview Hannibal then puts this on his YouTube channel. He gets clicks and he receives a check at the end of every single month. So when Jeff said, if you want to find out about this, we encourage you, do your research on Hannibal, see what's out there. You can see this video, but don't click on any channel that that Hannibal's got because he's going to make money from it. Every time a video is clicked, he gets paid, ladies and gentlemen, stay far away. So you've got a guy who's under the influence, has got essentially a weapon, and I'm not talking a a foreign object wrestling weapon. He's got something that could kill somebody in his hand, and he's jabbing the skull of a guy who looks to be in his 40s, out of shape. This is not an athlete. And of course, Hannibal's never going to go for anybody that he thinks, you know, he's going to go for a 70-year-old Terry Funk, which he did go for, and some of these older guys, but he's not going to go for a guy. He's not going to go for Kurt Angle. And I, you know, I don't yeah, know no, or he'll go is. for a guy at a fan fest who's yeah. going to shake somebody else's hand, and Hannibal thinks uh, he's been interrupted, so he gives the guy a shoot fucking slap across the chest. A guy who, uh, we love him, but not an athlete bear. No, and a guy who is, and, and I did not know his age, but a guy who is 62 years old, which would have made him probably 59 when this occurred, I believe three years ago, possibly four years ago, but not an athlete. First one to tell you, a member of Breaking Fabe, the Facebook group, which makes him part of what we do. But no, it, this, he's not, a, he'll be the first one to tell you. And look, if Hannibal would have slapped me across the chest like that, I, I, the good chance I would have gone down and this person didn't. Hannibal is a big guy. Hannibal could fuck you up. Easily. We'll give him that. However, you're a low-life fucking scumbag, Hannibal. It clearly has to be stated. You are a bottom-feeding piece-of-shit wannabe who wants to be in professional wrestling and has never been accepted. So you've created this whole fucking fake scenario for yourself, living in fucking Canada, making this whole fucking promotion where you can take innocent people and you can go and fucking hurt them to try to get clicks for your fucking YouTube video. You are a dirty fucking scumbag. Go fuck yourself, and I hope you fucking rot in hell, asshole. Give me an Excedrin. I was just watching that last night. So, is that what you I take? really, do you, do I, you I really don't know what else, What's that? 
do take exception. No, it's the friggin' uh, Christmas vacation. You know, oh, that's like, right. Give me an exception. Says, Give me an exception. That's right. Yeah, there's not a lot uh, I can add when you're dealing with a uh, a fucking basically a bottom feeding human. Why give him the credit? Why give him your clicks? Why do you want to do something that's going to assist somebody? Because, you know, it's like if you had somebody that uh, basically shit on you, and we've all had people like that. I've had people like that. Why do you want to give them the time of day? Why do you want to give them, especially, uh, first of all, why give them the time of day? That's uh, check one. Check two, why do you want to give this person the time of day and do something to help him get money? Because if you go and click on his fucking YouTube channel to hear him interview people or to hear him talk about the situation, uh, tell us about your time uh, working in Florida with uh, Dory Funk Jr. Thank you. No, no, because all you're doing when you click, even if you're curious and you say, whoa, let me see what this fucking piece of human garbage is like, and you hit that click button, or you hit that like button, you might as well, uh, hey, Bob Smith out there, just write a fucking check uh, to Hannibal uh, Cash, because that's what you're fucking doing when you go onto this guy's page. Okay, oh, and by the way, Barry, before we started recording, why don't you tell the folks what you told me that he's put out there on social media about this particular situation that we were discussing? Yeah, so Jeff and I were talking off air before we started recording. We occasionally do that. We do that just once in a while, but. Jeff said, so has Hannibal issued any sort of public statement? And I told Jeff what he said, which is leading to what was Jeff's rant, then into my rant. He said, full match to be available on YouTube soon. Check it out. Something to that effect. Of course. Yes. So instead of coming forth and saying I acted possibly unprofessionally, there was a miscommunication, you know, some other bullshit story. He instead, all he wants to do is to try to get you to watch the full match so you can see the guy fully being essentially violated. You could see him being attacked. And again, I, I'm speechless. I mean, I guess I'm not speechless, but uh, at that point, I'm, I'm, this is as disturbing a story in professional wrestling as I remember. And what makes it sad at the end of the day, Jeff, is who is Hannibal going to get next? Who is he going to pay next? $500 that's going to be on his channel. Who's it going to be? Let's maybe we should start a pool right now and start taking bets as to even though people are well aware of what he's about, what he's all about, 500 bucks to workers, Jeff, it's like a million dollars. Of course I'll do it, right? So, as we end this particular segment because quite frankly we've given this guy more time than he deserves. Yep. Lower human being Hannibal or Rob Black? So I, and for a second, when you said Rob, I thought you were going to say Feinstein. And, well, yeah, uh, we could throw that name out there too. I was going to say, there's a name right there that you could throw out there. So yeah, uh, so I would imagine. I mean, I should say if if the stories of Rob Feinstein are true, and apparently he's extremely litigious, or at least threatens a lot of lawsuits, which is why I'm going to really clarify this statement. If the stories about Rob Feinstein are true, and we should say these were never proven in a court of law, but if they are true, then the answer is Rob Feinstein. With that, I think Rob Black is a scumbag, but I think Hannibal might be even above Rob Black. Uh, or below, in the, as the case. Or, there you go. Yeah. So anyway, now, Barry, uh, that we're done giving that guy way too much time. 
Uh, let's talk about our match of the week. Barry, are you ready to go and check out some Japanese women? Usually, you know, you ask Greg Good that. He's like, hey, yeah, let's go. But no, I'm uh, talking Japanese wrestling, Barry. Why don't we go to our match of the week? So, Barry, for our match of the week, I got to tell you a quick story. I search out stuff on YouTube, and so I come across, there's this channel, it's called the Tim Tam channel, and it's a guy that posts a lot of stuff that's related to the Japanese women. So I saw this link, and it's in Japanese script, but then at the end of the uh, Japanese script or lettering, it says 1986 JBA versus uh, Bull and Condor. And my first thought was, holy shit, this is a match that was in my top 100. Uh, you know, that Barry and I have never talked about because I couldn't find the match. Uh, come to find out, Barry, I hate to say this, I was wrong. No, this was not in my top 100, but I can tell you, Barry, I don't know what you thought. I thought this was a pretty fucking amazing match. We are going to January, uh, I want to say it's like either the 3rd or the 4th of 1986, the Jumping Bomb Angels, Itsuki Yamazaki and Norio Tatano taking on Bull Nakano and the criminally, criminally underrated Condor Saido. Short window. Her career lasted less than five years, but I always thought she was an amazing performer, even though I will say Barry here. Wow, that's a bad hairdo that she's wearing. She's got this shag haircut. Uh, the ends are blonde. The top of her hair is dark. It's just a bad look, Barry. It's a bad look, but I got to tell you, for some reason, I'm really attracted to Condor and uh, Saido, and I don't know. I, she has a really pretty face. And so the first line of my notes, Jeff, this is funny that you say it. Condor was really good and doesn't get the love she deserves. Uh -huh. so, exactly. So great minds truly are thinking alike with this. I think partly is, uh, you know, because usually if I, whenever I always try to rationalize something, right? So when I look at it, she wasn't as great as say some of the other women in, in all Japan wrestling, all Japan women's wrestling. But at the same time, she was fantastic, right? Yes. So I, I think the bar is set so high that it, it definitely hurts her. And the fact that she did have a short career, I didn't realize it was only five years, but I knew it was short. Was it because of injury? I, I would think because, you know, the, the style that the, the ladies were working in Japan was really brutal, especially, you know, Bull Nakano at least was a, uh, I'll be polite, a taller, larger woman. Condor was, was really kind of small. And so, right. you know, she's taking some hellacious bumps and then hellacious, uh, you know, shots, uh, whether it's kicks or whatever. So it would not be terribly surprising if she wasn't, in fact, injured. And that's what led to her career. And, you know, quite honestly, that there was an age limit for uh, the women. Right. And so it, she may have just retired maybe a year earlier than she was supposed to anyway. Yeah, that's and that's a really good point, too. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I think about, too, is based off her last name, I, I immediately start to wonder if she's related to Masa Saito, realizing Saito is a popular name in Japan. But then I also wonder, I wonder if any, uh, like I start thinking, okay, what if Masa Saito and Condor had hooked up, had a baby, right? And they had little Saitos. I know that there were rules, but I also know a lot of these rules were being broken all the time by a lot of the women wrestlers. But I also wonder how many of them hooked up with the male wrestlers. And I know there's obviously a couple of stories out there, and I believe it's, wasn't it Akira Hukudo that ma married uh, uh yeah, Sasaki? Yeah, she married, yeah, Kensuke Sasaki. And uh, yeah. uh, apparently, uh, this one's for uh, Adam Dumau, because Adam uh, made some comments about uh, her physical appearance. Let me just say that Akira Hokuto, one of the things, besides being a fantastic, all-time great worker in the ring, 
Uh, let's talk about the story about the trip to North Korea. We'll go off uh, uh, on a tangent here. So we've repeated the story, but I'll, I'll share it again for the benefit of uh, those who don't know it. During the famous uh, show in North Korea that was Flair Inoki, uh, they brought over some of the women and uh, they brought over some of the guys from New Japan. And apparently, uh, Kinsuke Sasaki and Akira Hokuda became quite enamored with themselves. I don't know if they were married yet or not, but I think they were like maybe just hooking up. And apparently one of the most memorable things from the uh, the trip itself to North Korea was the, <clears throat> let's just say the vocalizations of Akira Hokuda. <laughs> That's right. Uh, apparently she's a noisy one when it comes to uh, getting her... Uh, her own on it, and, and you know, and uh, Kinsuke was put, was putting the wood to her that night. Let's just say there, and uh, she was quite noisy, and uh, pretty much everybody that was in the hotel that night uh, heard her uh, excited exclamations. Boy, I'm being really nice here, Bear. Yeah, exactly. And I last I had heard they were still married. Yes, and I think they got a couple kids and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, which is great. I think that's great. But did have me wondering, like, what if? Because you got to think if the I don't know how old these kids are, but I mean that's a Sasaki. I think was he was one of the three Musketeers, right? No, he wasn't. No, he was he was the guy. Uh, oh, you're he, right. He, that was he teamed Chono. up with. Yeah, that was Chono, Hashimoto, and Hashimoto. Right. And uh, Sasaki was the guy that teamed up with Road Warrior Hawk. Uh, and Hase, with Hiroshi Hase. Yeah, and they I think they called them the Power Warriors or something like that. And he kind of did a Road Warrior gimmick in Japan where he'd come to the ring with the shoulder pads and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So, But he was he was with Hase for a while prior to going becoming one of the Road Warriors. He was with Hase. Hase obviously became a very successful politician. But Sasaki, I think, was the guy that was always viewed out of that group. And there was – I forget who else was with them. It was Sasaki, Hase – and there was one or two others, but he was always kind of viewed as the lesser of those guys. I think he was also the youngest, possibly, which may have been part of it. But as a worker, he was great. But you start in Akira Hokuda. I mean, you know, there's not enough. We could talk about her every episode and we still wouldn't be able to, you know, really translate how great she was because she really was fantastic. But what if some, you know, what if Condor and Masa Saito had gotten together and had a baby and. Just, you know, I don't know. I, I think I, I'm partying too much. <laughs> you kind of got off it. on a tangent there. I did. I, I need to like, I need to, so, yeah, I got to Let, stop. Let's do other potential hookups that could have resulted right. in children <laughs> that would have been great workers. Yeah, exactly. As long as they have the same last name, that's really exactly, where I Exactly, yeah. So the match is a good match. JBA wins the first fall. The heels come back, win the second fall. And then as you had texted me today, as a matter of fact, you said, that third fall, wow, right? Well, you're right, because that third fall, and that this is standard for Japan as well. They really, look, if the first two falls are good, that third fall is going to be a fucking home run ballpark. You know, it's just going to be amazing. So third fall is great. Bull gives one of the jumping bomb angels this tombstone-like pile driver. And you know what I want, I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Her fucking head goes into the mat. I mean, yeah. th there's, you know, if it doesn't, you're talking it's a fraction of an inch, but I watched it and I'm like, how in God's name did she not just break her neck? Then Bull covers her. She didn't break her neck because then she bridges out of the pin. That's incredible to see it. Uh, third fall really is awesome. The finish is a, a jumping bomb angels do this bridging suplex on Bull for the win. They were big. And this is maybe the most gorgeous bridging suplex I've ever seen. Bull takes it, in my opinion, you know, my opinion, she takes it flat on the back of her neck, 
Like when you look at it, you just go, holy shit. This is, I would say, this is probably a four and a half to five star match. I'll go four and a half only because I don't think the first two falls match up to the third fall. And I think the third fall is about five or six minutes. So it's not super long. But with that being said, this is just absolutely an incredible, incredible match. So a couple things. Uh, first of all, the Bear Revenants goes about 12 minutes. Second fall goes about seven minutes. Then they get to the third fall. Norio Titano hits a German suplex that, as Barry said, is about as textbook a German suplex as you'll ever see. So uh, I made a couple notes about this, uh, and then I'll talk about the third fall. Way back when, I want to say like in either episode one or four or five, when we were just starting this, we had reviewed a match from Japan with Ricky Choshu and Killer Khan. And what I talked about in that match was the way that Khan would scream as he's doing a move. And I said it was almost like this primal scream, you know, like feral, just really incredible uh, selling. And as I was watching these girls, especially in the first fall, when they're like putting each other like in a leg lock or 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 they're selling, uh, you know, an arm being worked over and they're screaming and I can't help it. I know that I've said this before, but I don't see any women that are wrestling in the United States today selling a move like that. And I'm not trying to shit on all women wrestlers in the United States because, you know, we talked about I love Britt Baker. I love, you know, some of the other ladies that are doing good work in the AEW. Honestly, I don't watch the WWE, so I can't comment other than the fact that I know there is nobody working anywhere in the business today. And I put this out there uh, the other day in a, in a, uh, a post on our group that there's nobody that is doing the kind of work these women were doing. And we, you know, we talked about a, uh, a run that a promotion or a guy had in a promotion. Uh, think about it from 86 to like 95 bull Nakano was a, was a performer for, uh, for the women's group. And what an incredible run she had as, you know, uh, a lead care as a, a tag team wrestler. Then she became like the, the face of the promotion essentially. And she would have matches against such widely varied opponents, you know, Aja Kong, where they're just beating the fuck out of one another and having these stiff matches. Uh, Shinobu Kandori, she would have, you know, who was a, like an MMA, a judo kind of girl. She would have matches with them. Then she'd have matches with Kira Hukuda or Manami Toyota. She wrestled all these kind of different opponents and would have great matches with all of them. It was really unbelievable. So here's something I want to say. Barry... I looked up Bull Nakano's age. Bull was not even 18 when this match took place. Get the fuck out of here. Seriously? That just fucking boggles my mind. She was born like January 8th, 1968. This match took place like January 4th. She was still 17 when this match took place. Wow. You know, we talked about guys like Terry Gordy, uh, you know, guys that were from day one, stepped in the ring, boom, and they could perform. And, you know, guys as teenagers that were able to do that. Terry Gordy's uh, the one that's really coming to mind now. but. You know, we don't we don't mention Bull Nakano in that in that category, and we absolutely should. The fact that she began training when she was like 15, and here she is, not even 18 yet, and she's fucking having these amazing matches. And you know, Barry, I know you've said before that uh, the Japanese women there were points in time when they were the best promotion in the world, and absolutely. I know people don't want to hear that, but it was true, especially right about here, it was true. Uh, that there was really nobody that, that was better than them. And one of the things that doesn't get enough credit for that is 
the amazing training that went into making someone a star in this promotion. This wasn't just, oh, wow, she's got a, a great figure or she's a pretty girl or something like that. No, you had to be able to fucking work. You had to be able to sell yourself or your opponent to the fans. And whether it was Jaguar or Yakota training these women, whether it was the, you know, the way the promotion manipulated the, uh, the, the pushing and promoting of certain people in the group, they did an incredible job. They told storylines better than anybody. And again, that one caveat they had in this promotion where once you hit 25, you were done and you had to re retire. Well, actually what they did was uh, before your 26th birthday, I think was the rule that you had. And that's why Dump Masamoto retired. And she was like the figurehead of the promotion. And she retired at the, the height of her powers uh, as a heel because she hit that, uh, that age 26. So they made her retire. But the training that went into making these women unbelievable wrestlers, unbelievable performers that, you know, the pens, when, when someone would go for a cover, this wasn't just, let me slide my shoulder out. No, yes. these women went for bridges with their neck, Yep. you know, yep. and think about in order to do that, how many bridging necks uh, you were doing in, uh, in training every day, Barry, they were probably doing like hundreds and thousands of these things so that it became second nature to them. The training, Barry, oh, my God, just unbelievable. Well, and think, so you referenced Akira Okuda breaking her neck and then holding it in place to finish the match. That sounds insane, but that's accurate. So you're 100% you're correct, Jeff. Check. In the fact that, it, you know, imagine if Akira Okuda had not gone through that kind of training, there's a great chance she would have died on the spot, right? Yeah, no, the, there's no question about it because she had taken a pile driver i want to say off either the the second or top rope yep, yep. Uh, and obviously something went wrong but the fact that here she breaks her neck she she reaches up she holds the back of her head and neck and like let's go to the finish you know it's just absolutely fucking crazy so a couple more things uh i mentioned the way they they sold the moves the screams they did the fans reacting especially uh the original intro uh, when they're doing the introductions the, uh, the jumping bomb angels, the one that gets the biggest reaction is the one with the longer hair. Her name is Itsuki Yamasaki. But during the match, as the heels are working on Norio Titano, you hear the crowd, Norio, Norio. And they're going like for 15 seconds, they're going sh batshit crazy for Norio Titano, which led me to wonder, Barry, imagine at the height of their baby face uh, draw, like the Rock and Roll Express, okay? Imagine if underneath them, they had like, let's just say the Fantastics, okay? Because they're a great team too. But imagine if both teams were on a card and both teams were getting almost similar reaction because at this point, the Crush Girls were, the you know, uh, Linus Asuka and Shigusa Nagoya were the most popular women's tag team anywhere. And they were over like rock stars. And here you see the reaction that the Jumping Bomb Angels are getting and they're really, let's say, the mid-card to upper mid-card tag team. They're not the main eventers in the promotion, but they're still getting the crowd so emotionally invested in them that they're, you know, like when the, the introductions are made and the streamers are thrown, man, they're getting tons of streamers thrown because they were super over as a babyface team. Yeah, So, and I don't know if in the U.S. how that would have played out. Definitely bookers would have been afraid to do anything sure, no, like that. Understandably. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second aspect is I don't know how the crowds would have or the audience would have reacted to it. 
Because again, you know, if you would have had the Rock and Roll Express and maybe the Fantastics and or maybe the Fabulous ones, at some point it, something is going to give on that. But a couple of points with this also, because these are comments that I tend to see on Facebook. One is, I'll never watch women's wrestling because I could never buy into it. I don't know how to respond to that, you know, because again, look, I've said it multiple times in the last four and a half years that we've been doing this podcast, this was the greatest promotion in the world when at, at this time, at this actual time. And here's the other aspect. You can go back and watch these matches 30 and 35 years later, and they're still fucking great. Like this is timeless. This is not something that's going to be dated in 10 or 15 years. These women put their lives on the line dangerously. They did it on a daily basis when they were working. The other is some people won't watch Japanese wrestling because they, they don't understand what the commentators are saying. And that's another one that I'm like, you know what, then fucking lower the volume and just watch this. If that's a distraction, this legitimately, and I don't look, I, I, I certainly won't be alive in a hundred years, but I'm really hard pressed at this stage to tell you that even in a hundred years, you're going to find better more realistic professional wrestling than this match right here, Jeff. Yeah. And the women are, um, man, they're just so good at what they do. And you know, the, the point I made when I posted the picture of Hokuda and Manami Toyota the other day was this picture is like probably at least 25 years old and there's still nobody in the business that is as good. And I'm in the ring, you know, there are characters that have been developed, not just by AEW, but by WWE that have gotten over with the crowd. There's no question about that. I will I will give them that. My point was, I don't think that, that anyone is nearly as good as these ladies in the ring. And part of that, quite frankly, is because I don't know that anyone has been trained as, I hate to say it, as hard and as ruthlessly as these women were. Because let's be honest, if you were going to be with the Japanese, all Japan women's, you were getting trained very hard and they were trying to weed out the, the ones that were going to quit. They were yep. going to try to weed out the ones that weren't as tough, not just physically, but mentally. And, you know, it's funny because I can remember when they were at their Zenith, I think like once a year they would have tryouts. And literally they would have thousands of young girls between the ages of, say, eh, 15 and maybe 18 that would come and try out. And there were some that didn't make it that ended up going to other promotions, like I think it was JWP uh, and stuff, and would become successful. But they weren't making it. They weren't cutting the mustard for the All Japan women. And so the ones that were there, the ones that did make it, just became usually incredibly successful. And they were incredibly well you know, trained and disciplined. So they knew that. So someone like Akira Hokuda, and the, uh, the incident, by the way, happened when she was uh, working under her real name, which was Asako Uno. And when she, think about it, she breaks her neck. And instead of going, holy shit, let me get out of the ring so I can get this neck taken care of uh, so I don't end up becoming paralyzed, the first thing that comes into her mind is, let's go to the finish. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's just fucking crazy for her to think that. And, you know, and again, these aren't women that have been in the business for 15 or 20 years that are, you know, they've got that veteran mentality. They know what to do. These are women that are probably all in the business less than five years and are probably, in a lot of cases, in their late teens or maybe early 20s. Barry, do you think you would have had that kind of discipline when you were in your late teens or early 20s? Because I sure the hell wouldn't. 
Jeff, I don't have that kind of discipline right now. That's true. Let, you know. Yeah, let alone thirty. Please, I could barely fucking tie my shoes at at that age. So you know, no, this is an anomaly. This does not occur. This is a rarity, and this speaks volumes of why you've got to watch this fucking match, people. Yeah. So uh, just a few more points to make. Uh, number one, I was as I was watching this, Barry, and we talked about Condor Saito. If someone wanted to, uh, if someone said, "Give me a comparison." What was Condor Saito like? Or Saito like? So if Dom Masamoto is your uh, your Michael Hayes, okay, and Bull Nakano is your Terry Gordy, Condor Saito would be your Buddy Roberts. She was the one that could take the bumps, could do the falls, and not lose any of her heat. That was what she was. That's who she, you know, th- that's the the way the character developed, and she did a great job at it. Uh, I will mention that uh, in this match you had uh, in the corner. You in the babyface's corner, you had uh, Devil Masami, who you see, I think she's wearing like a white jacket or a white uh, coat. In the heels corner, there's a, a masked woman who is there. She's got like an O on her mask. And apparently, under the hood was a woman named Rossi Ogawa. And the reason I bring that up yeah. is because she is the president of Stardom, Greg Good's right. favorite promotion. So you got that going for you. So now let me talk before uh, that we do the go home on this segment. The last fall, the third fall, when everything just kind of breaks loose. Let's just say my notes were, you had nunchucks aplenty. Because seemingly everybody, the, the, the baby faces finally decide uh, we've had enough. And uh, we're going to start, you know, throwing some stuff, uh, you know, fire. We're fighting fire with fire. And so they take it outside the ring. There's all kind of brawls. Condor Sato takes an, a pretty stiff looking chair shot to the head. You know, I mean, it's not like a complete, you know. I mean, she gets her hands up and, and blocks it somewhat, but it's a good-looking chair shot. There's all kind of brawling outside the ring. I don't know. I, I think one of the baby faces gets the nunchucks and is using – they use it to the stomach. And uh, just the third fall is a really wild brawl. And what it does, like any really good two-out-of-three-fall match is supposed to do, is it builds to that finish, Barry. It builds to that wildness of the third fall. Yeah, it absolutely does, Jeff. And everything you just said, I think, encapsulates. Look, th- this match is—it's the blueprint of how to of what they were doing successfully. I was going to say what what promotions should be doing successfully, but what they were doing, hey, it was booked so good. You know, everything about all Japan women's wrestling was booked so good and made sense. And made sense because that's it, though. It, it all made. That's why it's booked good, right? Because it all made sense. And here's the other aspect of it. It didn't just play to the people in Japan, you know, and again, that you could look at the crowd. You've got men in suits. You have young women. You have older women. So you've got this very demographic at the same time. The booking makes sense to uh, us Anglos in, in, in the United States who aren't even there live. We look at it and go, wow, I would go buy a ticket because this this booking makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, I love that. I love that idea. Yeah. So anyway, uh, just for the final thought, uh, the jumping bomb angels, uh, Yamazaki and Titano, uh, get the win and they get the, uh, the tag belts, which are presented at the end of the match. So they become the new tag team champions, uh, there for, uh, the all, all Japan women. Great match. We're going to post a link to this match in our group. I urge you to take a, a look at it. Think outside the box, folks, give these women a, uh, a chance. And I tell you what, if you watch this match, then sit there and think to yourself, about the matches that you've seen on in this country, whether they be WWE or whether they be AEW, and not so much the characters that you're watching, but the in-ring and, in some cases, out-of-the-ring stuff they're doing, because that is where 
I think the All Japan women separate themselves completely from the stuff that even 25 plus years later was being done in this country. So I hope you check it out. I think you'll uh, really find that you enjoyed it. Barry, never a bad time to give the folks out there listening to Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry a good TV show recommendation. Am I right, my man? Absolutely right. So Barry and I recently were watching on Netflix Squid Game. Now, Barry, you know, you turned me on to this and you said, oh, have you started watching this yet? You got to watch this show is just so uh, friggin' mental and it's like things just come out of left field. So you had watched it before I did and then I started watching it. And after the first episode, I was like, wow, this is a pretty twisted shit. And then I go like another two episodes and I'm like, well, okay, I have my theory as to what's going on here. And you're like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to tell you because <laughs> you got to wait to the damn ending to uh, find out what happens because there is a definite twist ending. And I love twist endings, Barry. So Barry, tell the folks about Squid Game. Yeah. And I forget how I got hooked onto Squid Game. It, it could have just been much like was- your uh, heroin abuse when you got hooked on that. We had to well, pull you out of that, and then you got hooked on Squid Game. And then I got hooked on Squid Game, and uh, and now I'm off of Squid Game, but I'm looking to get hooked on something new. I just need the right conduit for that to happen. Pasta? Which, pasta. Well, yeah, that's actually where I'm leading towards. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, which really is a lot more fun, too, than any yeah, of that exactly. other stuff. But, yeah, so as it turns out, I, I forget exactly what it was. I, I, it was probably the, uh, the deluge of uh, social media posts about the Squid Game, and I, I turned it on, and I got to tell you, I'm a big fan. I'm one of those people. I have zero issue with subtitles. I, in a lot of ways, I, it actually, it forces me cause I do have ADD. It forces me to always look at the screen and not be distracted by my phone or something else. So I, I'm a real big fan of, uh, of subtitles and it was probably within the first 10 to 15 minutes of squid game. I think when they were doing not really a spoiler, they were doing that game in the subway system, in the train stations. And I was just so like, this is so weird. This is so unusual. I watched the first episode and I think I watched the following two episodes. And uh, when it came down to it, you were great in the sense that there were two, I guess, two spoilers in a sense. And you had kind of determined and you had predicted exactly what they were. And much like you were just ridiculing me, I won't tell you anything. You'll ask me, and I'm like, I won't say a word. I, I can't. I can't do that. I can't spoil this shit. But you, you nailed it, which is amazing because I would not have nailed either of those. I think I'm just blissfully ignorant as I'm watching, you know, the Squid Game, not coming up with any sort of theories. But you were correct in both of your theories, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Much like you know, Cobra Kai or, or any of the Bosch, you know, my God, I think I went into a postpartum depression when Bosch was over. I was, bummed. by the way, as we are speaking, uh, stranger things, uh, probably, I think, uh, well, no, Cobra Kai definitely set to debut 31st. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I think, uh, the new stranger things is also coming out right around either the end of the year or beginning of the year. So we got that to look forward to. Yeah, we do. And it's, uh, again, it's a great time to be a fan of, of television and, uh, if you like to binge watch shows, the fact that we have the option where we can binge watch a show and do three hours per night, to me, that's just, you know, if you would have told me that 15, 20 years ago, right, I would have said, no way. I just think that's like the coolest thing. But Squid Game, I really liked. I liked it all the way through. There were a couple of scenes. I should say there are several scenes which are very disturbing. 
And there were a couple of scenes where I was very saddened by because there's some acting in here that I also think, again, not understanding Korean at all, right? I don't understand any Korean whatsoever. The acting was still phenomenal. And it was, I think I told you, the two of the younger girls that are part of the game, there's a scene between the two of them that I, I just was like, wow, this is, this is powerful shit. Like we're seeing some really, really powerful shit. There's no flaw with Squid Game either. The acting is strong. The script is strong. The direction is strong. And if you're looking for something that is really highly unique, I don't recall anything ever like this before. Squid Game is exactly the show you're looking for, Jeff. So a couple things. First of all, let's talk about the fact that right now South Korea is putting out some really strong content, whether it's yeah. uh, television shows, films, whatever. So for those of you that are, uh, oh, I hate subtitles or I can't stand watching stuff that's dubbed, you're really missing out on some real high quality content. And, you know, you're, you're missing out on on stuff that that other people are raving about. So I go back to the IMDb scale. And anything above a 7.5, whether it's a movie, television show, whatever, uh, documentary, that is, uh, you know, above a 7.5 generally means you're looking at a really strong show. This program, 8.1 on the IMDb scale. So that tells you that this is a real high quality. Anything above 8 is really high quality. So let me just, uh, very quick, since we haven't done it yet, Barry, let's talk about what the show is about. What happens is, you are uh, essentially talking about a group of people that uh, number in, I want to say a couple of hundred that are, let's just say they have some financial situations going on, that uh, they're in real trouble. They don't know how to get out of it. And what happens is they are presented with this opportunity to play a game. And it's a game apparently in South Korea that is a, a kid's game. It's kind of like playing uh, you know, tag or hide and go seek in this country. And Squid Game uh, is a, a a children's game. And so, of course, the invitation is given to them and they're like, oh, well, geez, I, all I have to do is play this kid's game. Sure, I'll give it a shot. However, what they don't realize is when they're invited to play this game out of the group of uh, hundreds, there's only one person that's a winner. Uh, the one person will get all his bills wiped out. They stand to make a huge financial windfall. but at what cost? Because what they don't know is that the game has a far, far more sinister side because while you're playing the game and you get eliminated, <laughs> Barry, you get eliminated if you get my drift. Oh, you get eliminated. And and it's that that's the beauty of it too. There's nothing about this that's gentle at all. This is a rough show. This is not a show for everybody. I was talking with Zoe yesterday actually and we were talking about squid game and uh i said have you seen it and she goes no should i see it and i said yeah it's great and then i said no no you shouldn't see it actually because it's it definitely isn't something that she would be about she wouldn't be into there is a lot of killings when we talk about a lot of killings it's almost at a level in some ways of like kill bill with you know with the uh the crazy 88s right where she goes just fucking yeah very violent with mass mass shootings and killings and uh a lot of people just shot in the head all the time so but that being said this is compelling as well jeff this is not something you know this is one of those shows i always i can gauge how i react to something when i wake up at 3 a.m if i think about it and uh, i can tell you squid game i would wake up at 3 a.m going holy shit did i really see that today 
did I really see that tonight? So this is highest recommendation for me. And I will tell you that one of the things, and I, I'm not going to spoil anything because I, I do want people that listen to this show to check this show out. It, it is worth your time. And yeah, I think it's like, I don't even think it's 10 episodes. Is it Barry? Is it like I think, eight? I think it, I think it was 10. I, I don't know. It's not okay. a lot though. To your Yeah. Point, this isn't like you, you got to commit yourself to uh 20 right. episodes or something like that. But anyway, one of the things that I did mention to Barry as we were discussing the show uh, after I had finished watching it and we were both looking back, uh, uh, you know, retrospectively and uh, first time we've ever used the word retrospectively. Oh, that's Barry. a big word. And I started talking about what this was similar to. And I'm not going to mention the name of the film because it'll give away uh, to those of you that have seen this movie. Uh, it would give away the premise of the show. But there is a movie and I said, you know what this is like, Barry? This is like yeah. this movie. And you went, yeah, kind of son of a bitch. You're right. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Well, and there's there's actually two movies that it's like, but there's one very much like that, which I believe was a Japanese film. And we won't give away the name, but yeah, you could definitely see where the inspiration came from. As much as I liked the film, the TV show is different. The TV show is better. It's a little more unique, and I think it's not as basic as the movie was. The movie was fairly basic for the most part. Well, and this they is, certainly this have is more, intricate. Yeah, they have more time to flesh out the characters. Absolutely. Uh, and, and there are, I'll be honest, in the first few episodes, there's a lot of characters, and you have to kind of keep track of a lot of different people. I mean, there's like two or three that are the central characters, and you kind of recognize them, but there's also these supporting characters that you got to kind of flesh out, and they kind of start... Uh, over the course of a few episodes, they flesh out the backstory as to how these people got into this particular situation, uh, what happened to them that led them down this road. And uh, the finish of the show is uh, very poignant. And uh, I've actually done a little bit of reading on this show. And uh, one of the things I read is South Korea, apparently after the Korean War and all this, uh, had some just extreme financial hardships that they went through. And then they went through a situation where there was a certain sort of a uh, minority status that were just like uh, ultra elite, uh, ultra rich. And there was no middle class. It was like either the, the ultra high class, uh, I don't mean to say high class, uh, wealthy is a better way of putting it. And then you had the extreme lower class that were living basically in shanty towns and stuff like that. And so, it uh, the propensity for violence and violent content, you know, uh, sort of almost like a revenge thing went through people's minds. And it was something that became sort of a cultural phenomenon going on in South Korea. And that's what sort of gets people going on, uh, you know, stuff like that. You know, we've talked before about movies that came out of South Korea, Train to Busan, Ichi the Killer, uh, Old Boy, that are like really ultra violent. I mean, great films, but they have this ultra violent part of them also bear. Yeah, they, they do too. And I, in an old boy too. And I, I think I, I've told you my story of old boy. When I was working for universal studios in Orlando, we came up to Pennsylvania to visit my ex's parents. Um, we brought the kids and we were up here for about a week. And I went to New York for, I guess, 36 hours. I was going up to visit friends. I had some time to kill. And, uh, there was a theater on, uh, I guess it was near NYU and it was uh, the it's the IFC theater, which is the independent film channel. They had their own theater. So they were showing a bunch of movies 
I saw that old boy was there. I had no idea what it was. And I Googled it and I said, wow, this sounds really good. Well, I walked out of the theater two and a half hours later and I said, that might've been just one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. And the closest thing I think I could compare old boy to was a Tarantino movie. It's, there was so much about it that reminded me of a Tarantino movie. And I don't think any, he had lifted anything from Tarantino, but it was just a certain point of view is the way he was presenting this film and all the twists and turns that, that took place, the ending, everything about old boy to me worked. And, uh, I raved about it. I got home, got back to Pennsylvania. I told my ex about it. She said, I have to see it. And eventually when it came out on DVD, I bought the DVD, which I still have. And I, I just think, I think it's an underrated film. I think it's one of the best. And also happy to say that I never saw the American remake that Spike Lee did years ago. Yeah, no, thanks. One of the, you know, as you were talking about that, uh, I mentioned the movie Train to Busan. Train to Busan, to me, is one of the great horror films that you'll ever see. And for a comparison, it's like The Walking Dead in the first couple of seasons when it was a really strong show before it kind of went into the shitter. But... It's even better than the first couple of seasons of The Walking Dead. So any of you out there that uh, that like The Walking Dead in the first couple of seasons before everything kind of started going sideways on the show, that's just my opinion. Train to Busan is just like that, except it's even better. And so, uh, yeah, South Korea just putting out some incredible content. Speaking of that, that's me, Barry, the king of segways. Oh. Let's also talk about another film from South Korea that we both watched and enjoyed. This was a documentary the documentary called The Raincoat Killer, Chasing a Predator in Korea. So what this is about, it, it is, uh, let me see, three episodes. That's all you have to commit yourself to, you people with short attention span. It's about the very first serial killer ever in South Korea and the way that the case was just completely mucked up by the police, uh, how uh, they completely misread all the stuff that this guy was putting out there. Uh, you had a guy that was seriously, seriously fucking disturbed. So for those of you who are into the true crime stuff, you know, I'm um, looking at you, uh, Ian Totten and people like that. If you've never seen this, uh, this three-episode story that's on Netflix, The Raincoat Killer, baby. Uh, Barry, baby. Barry, <laughs> Barry baby. <laughs> There you go. That's a first right there. Exactly. Your next um, for me has now been made public. Look at exactly. that. Okay, baby. Um, <laughs> I'll do my dusty rules. Okay, Barry, Barry, okay. baby. I'm going to throw well, it to you. Uh, daddy back and dream. Uh, what you thought about the raincoat killer, daddy? Listen up. Hot times right now coming from the dream, if you will. Hot times as you work 30 years at a plant. They give you a go watch, kick you on the ass, and say, have a nice day. My daddy worked in the ditches with T.C. Lee for years. I'm the Lee, son of a plumber. Son we of could, a ditch digger, son of a plumber. We could do dusty impressions all day. <laughs> That's, you know what, we need to, at the next Fan Fest, we need to, like, late at night after all the partying has taken place, we got to break out, like, the dusty and macho man impressions, because I get a feeling we could have a lot of fun yeah. with that. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So... I really like this, Jeff. And you you're, you turned me on Back to this. Back to the one. raincoat killer. Back to the raincoat killer. Is Ooh, the segue there. Children are done playing, so we'll get back. Uh, and uh, yeah, but you, you turned me on to the raincoat killer. And uh, what I liked about it, hey, three episodes. 
there's no filler. Sometimes we get these, and I forget there was one that we watched. It was about the uh, the dr- the two drug dealers, the coke dealers in South Florida, right? Was that the one that they padded a little bit? Yeah, yeah, okay. they definitely made it longer than it needed to be. Yeah, you you know exactly. If you can get to it, there's no reason to stretch these out to like six or seven episodes. Three episodes, I think, a little over three hours. And uh, I got to tell you, informative and also riveting and really disturbing that this was occurring in in Korea as well. So as Jeff mentioned, the first serial killer, or I guess the first serial killer of record. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Yeah, because who knows at this stage, but really unique and really well done. And uh, there's a couple of characters. And again, I think we saw this a month or two ago. So I am going off a memory, which my memory is not great, but the one. I guess retired chief. The he was the guy that wore the sunglasses through the. Inter- he looks like Tenru. <laughs> he looks. He looks like Tenru does now. Correct. Yeah. And he wore these sunglasses, and he just uh, comes across as uh, arrogant, and he knows everything, and nobody could tell him anything. And uh, but he does make it really interesting as well. So I really like this one, and uh, you know, it Netflix appears from what I've been reading, Jeff, that they have a lot going on with South Korea, that they're going to be exporting, not importing, but exporting a lot. Importing and exporting. This would be Vandalay Netflix Industries. Exactly, yes. It's all from South Korea. But Originally, they were going to be about architects, Barry. They were going to be about architects. Have you seen the new edition of the Guggenheim? (laughs) I did that. It's quite breathtaking. It is breathtaking. You sent me a link on a, another show that is coming uh, from South Korea that will be on Netflix. The breaking news, there is a Squid Game 2 that is going to be coming as well. Ooh, uh, yeah, so so they, you know what, Netflix has kind of realized, you know, there's some great shit coming out of South Korea. We need to jump on this. And they have, and I think it's working out pretty friggin' well for them, Jeff. The one person uh, that's uh, part of the, I don't want to say cast, the, the cast of characters, because it's a documentary because they interview a lot of the police that were involved in the investigation. And there is a woman who plays, uh, who is one of the forensics officers. She's uh, great. And the emotion that she conveys, even if you're reading the subtitles, I mean, you can still see somebody that's obviously troubled and upset. And she talks about how, and, and this case, by the way, took place over 15 years ago. So some of the people that are involved in this have retired since then. There are a few that are still working in the police department. Uh, or for their investigation. I believe the woman is retired, though. And she talks about how stuff that they would would find, how troubling it was. And, you know, like people don't realize when you're in that field that you have to go home at night and you have to, I mean, you just don't go to bed and, you know, okay, I'll just forget about everything I've seen where this guy slaughtered this person, you know. And one thing that particularly was gripping to me was, Apparently, this guy would kill the uh, his victims, uh, at least the majority of the victims ended up being um, prostitutes. Uh, by the way, Barry, apparently for a while there in South Korea, the prostitution scene, uh, much like uh, the prostitution scene, from what I understand, in Amsterdam, <laughs> where you would walk past a window and, and, and they showed you this, like the girls were essentially sitting in a uh, a room and it was like kind of all dressed up like uh, you know, she was sitting in her living room. She'd have like a, a chair and a, and a chest of drawers and, you know, things on the wall, <laughs> like she was, you know, at home or something. 
And you'd kind of go by and you'd look at it and you go, mm, yeah, okay, she's pretty nice looking. Tap, tap, tap. And, uh, you know, that's well, how Jeff, you, Let uh, me ask you a question about that. When you go shopping for, for a nice prostitute, do you want your done pro- that a few years though? But yeah, anyway, okay. Do you like your prostitutes in the window or or not the window? How does that work? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> window shopping, uh, window if shopping, you, if you will, Barry. You know, but uh, <laughs> I guess you get to uh, see uh, anything that uh, let's just say you're into or not into on display there for you. That's true. But yeah, uh, yeah. so um, but you know, getting back to the forensics uh, lady, you know, she talked about how the guy would take the women back to his apartment. He would kill them, but then he would begin to literally dismember them, and he would do it like in uh, like a shower stall. However, when you're dismembering thing, uh, there is a little of what you call your old splatter uh, evidence, Barry. And so, like they would come in, and the guy would sit there, and of course he would do this, and this is no spoiler, and he would like hose down his shower stall. And then what happened was the forensic team came into this guy's apartment after he got arrested, and they're like looking, and they're like. Well, uh, it doesn't seem to be anything out of place here. And then much like Barry, when you go to your cheap motels, you turn on the old blue light and and it was like, what the, you know, and there was literally blood on the ceiling, uh, you know, where it had splattered and hit the ceiling, blood all over the walls. And this guy, of course, is not thinking, hey, I need to uh, take the bleach on the ceiling here. And it was fucking everywhere. And as she began telling the story, she gets emotional about the reaction that she had then and now. So anyway, Raincoat Killer, I understand this is not going to be for uh, for Antonio Fido to watch, Barry needless to say. But if you are into true crime at all and true crime investigations, that kind of thing, this is something that I think you would really find fascinating and interesting the way the police ultimately captured this guy and what happened afterwards. Yeah, and again, it's highly recommended, Jeff. And uh, I'm excited. As as we're saying, there's a season two. Do you have any idea when season two is coming out? You're talking about the Squid Game, not the Raincoat Killer. I there am is, correct. Yeah. There's no season two. On no that. season two of the Raincoat Killer. All right. Yeah, no, I have no idea. But again, both highly, highly recommended. Barry, as always, it's a pleasure to be joined by a friend of the show, George Shire. Unfortunately, uh, sometimes when we have friends of the show join us, it's for a not so good reason. And we wanted to reach out to George so that we can discuss the recent passing of uh, the great Black Jack Lanza. Jack, of course, had such a great career in the AWA, always uh, seemingly, at least until the towards the end, affiliated with Bobby Bobby Heenan. And so, uh, George, first of all, welcome. And uh, we wanted to talk to you about uh, Jack Lanza, uh, Black Jack Lanza, and his career in the AWA. It's always great to be on with you guys. And uh, yeah, sad that we're doing it. You know, somebody passes away, but. Jack was a, a big star in the AWA, the WWA, and he wrestled in the WWF back in the day and other places. So he was he was a fairly big name. So when I first started, you know, catching the wrestling magazines, I must have got there not too long after the uh, young Jack Lanza donned the black cap and became Black Jack Lanza. When do you uh, first remember Jack Lanza coming across your radar? Well, I can tell you, I can go back to 1962 when I was uh, a mere 10 years old. I was one. Thank you. Uh, I I would have been uh, still 10 when he debuted. And I don't know if few people know this or not everybody does, but 
Jack was trained by Vern Gagne. He was a local guy out of Minneapolis, Jack was. He, re- he graduated from our De La Salle High School here in Minneapolis. And he was um, looking to get into wrestling. And Vern was always the guy to go to. So Vern took him under his wing. And he made his, Jack made his pro debut in Minneapolis on July 24th, 1962, introduced as Jack Lanza out of Minneapolis. Young kid, baby face, of course, came into the ring wearing a long red robe and a towel around his neck. And that was his debut. Ironically, in that match, that first match, his opponent was a guy named Black Jack Daniels. Uh, real name Jack Danielson. He was the real life brother-in-law of Stan Crusher Kowalski, the big K. And uh, Vern put him in the ring with Jack Daniels, who at that point in time was a good hand in the ring and was able to work, you know, with the rookies that Vern would come through and or come out with. So that's where it started. Gotcha. George, a couple of questions too. And uh, did, did Jack Lanza ever wrestle in the WWF when he joined the company as a road agent? Did he ever do any matches? I think he was in the Legends Battle Royal that they had once, correctly? That may be the only time he was, but he didn't do any wrestling. He had pretty much hung up his trunks by then. And, you know, this was in the later 80s, pretty close to 90. And he went uh, over there as a road agent and uh, worked there for pretty much till the end of his run. And I, I think it's been, boy, maybe six or seven, eight years since he has been done with Vince. But I believe he was always kept under contract. Gotcha. And I didn't know. So you having seen so much of Jack Lanza's career from his early baby face days and uh, later as a, as a heel, obviously, and then a part of a tag team uh, with the great Bobby Duncan as well. What was your favorite version of, of Jack Lanza? Oh, I definitely like I always liked heels. So I definitely liked him as as blackjack. Um, you know, he played he did the, something that a lot of the wrestlers did back in that era, guys, you know, they'd get trained for the business. And then for the next four five, sometimes even up to 10 years, they would uh, travel around to different territories or just gain experience. They didn't go automatically to the main events in those days. Like, you know, a lot of the wrestlers do today. They're, they're put in the ring on their first match and they're, you know, built up to be the greatest thing ever. But Jack did it the, the normal way. Uh, for the first three years, he was playing Jack Lanza out of Minneapolis, as I said. And then about 1964, he started coming to the ring wearing a white cowboy hat, some cut-off blue jeans that looked like trunks, and he had a pair of cowboy boots on, and he was now Cowboy Jack Lanza out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he was moved up on the cards at that point around the AWA. He would be in the the you know upper preliminaries, the semifinals, did a lot of tag team work with some of the other baby faces, teamed up with Billy Red Cloud, who was you know one of the local baby faces, and uh, had matches against Larry Hennig and Harley Race. So he was still getting a lot of his initial training, you know, working with all the guys through the AWA. And anybody that came into the AWA, I was looking at his record that I put together here the other day after he passed, and 
he met, he met everybody that came through the AWA as a babyface uh, up until 67 when he just disappeared as Cowboy Jack Lanza. And we did not see him then or hear from him until there was some guy named Black Jack Lanza who had turned on his tag team partner, Wilbur Snyder, and taken on Bobby Heenan as his manager. And, you know, the rest starts to come from there. So would you say, and I'm sure you can check on this uh, uh, doing research, was Blackjack with Bobby longer or was Nick with Bobby longer? In the end, Bobby was with Nick about 10 years, nine or 10 years in the AWA. Um, Bobby was with Lanza from 68 until about 80, 82 or 83. So 15 years. Yeah. And Lanza was probably, you know, you have to think about Bobby Heenan for a moment. He, he does, This was one of his really big breaks because before Lanza, Bobby had uh, managed for a short time the Devil's Duo, which was Chris Markoff and Angelo Poffo working for Dick the Bruiser's Indiana Wrestling Group, WWA. And uh, before that, Bobby just had a short stint working as a, a tag team, the Masked Assassins, which were uh, Guy Mitchell and Joe Tommaso. But Bobby hit it gold with Jack Lanza, and they really made it big in St. Louis. That's where Jack really took off. Uh, he appeared from the time he came in as Black Jack Lanza up until St. Louis was, you know, pretty much sold after Muchnick retired. Bobby Heenan was the only manager that Sam Muchnick ever let into St. Louis to go to ringside and work with the wrestlers. So that was a big deal in itself. But Lanza made it really big there. I read, uh, I don't know if it was in the Observer obit or what, that although Muchnick allowed Bobby in to St. Louis to wrestle or to uh, to work, and I believe he might have been the only manager that he allowed to work in uh, St. Louis shows, he would never pay Bobby the main event uh, money. He would always pay him like the same thing that he would pl- uh, pay the uh, the prelim guys, even though it was Bobby that was creating all the the, the heat and the ruckus at ringside. Were you Were you familiar with that? I'm not familiar with that, but I, I've kind of heard that in the past that Bobby didn't always get, you know, probably his rightful share of the the purse. But yeah, for sure, Bobby was the distraction that helped Jack Lanza. And, you know, Jack, when he came back then to the AWA in 1969, early 70, he looked like he was bigger, taller than he had been as Cowboy Jack. I always thought maybe he had some little lifts in his boots or something. I don't know that, but he just looked taller. And uh, he was all in black, of course, now with the black hat, the black trunks, with the uh, white horseshoe on the on the back of the trunks, on the butt, and his uh, black vest, you know, and the handlebar mustache. When he came back, it basically, for AWA fans, was, you know, oh, my gosh, what happened to Jack Lanza? And when Lanza and Heenan came back in, uh, it was the old story, you know, Jack said he was tired of being beat on by all of the, the heels and taking all the lumps and not getting the big money and the big main events. And he decided he's going to win. That's the name of the game. It's all about the money. And and so that's the reason he turned, you know, to the evil blackjack. So let me ask you, and I and I guess with the benefit of like probably over 50 years of hindsight, although you enjoyed him because you said you liked the villains and you liked the the interplay between him and Heenan. 
using the uh, the term that that the smart fans use, quote unquote, as a worker, uh, not as a heel or as a villain, but as a worker in the ring. Uh, how would you rank Blackjack? I would rank him. Always, I, I thought he was very good. He he was a guy that he was always believable. He was always very aggressive in the ring. He was very mobile. He wasn't a rest hold guy or anything like that. You know, he was usually uh, doing the stomping and the kicking and, uh, you know, distracting the referee while he's choking the opponent from behind and all that stuff. So in that respect, he was very entertaining, very believable. I, I will tell you that. Um, another guy that really, you know, there's two guys that really helped put him over. I mean, huge as Blackjack Lanza. And of course, in the AWA, it was the crusher, Reggie Lasowski. Uh, anybody that came through as a heel eventually hooked up, you know, was in a program with Crusher. And Crusher was, the, you know, the guy that could really put Lanza and Heenan over, coming up with his cute names for him. Uh, Crusher called Blackjack Lanza Oil Can Harry. And if you guys remember the old Mighty Mouse cartoons, his adversary in the cartoons was Oil Can Harry, a guy with a handlebar mustache and the black hat and everything. So that, you know, Crusher really helped him in the AWA to become as huge as he was. In the WWA, it was Dick the Bruiser, a natural opponent. And it was in St. Louis that the Bruiser became a babyface after teaming with Blackjack Lanza. Bruiser had become a babyface in 1969 in St. Louis. And in, in the AWA, he had been a babyface as early as 1965. So, and of course, in those days, fans, you know, with kayfabe and nobody knowing anything going on, we didn't know that. Bruiser really put Lanza over. They had a huge feud in St. Louis after their breakup. Bruiser's now the baby there. And Lanza continued to be a top draw. He battled against uh, the champions, the NWA champions of the day, Gene Kaniski, Dory Funk Jr. Uh, he wrestled Luthez. And he had matches against Pat O'Connor, that sort of thing in uh, St. Louis. And, of course, in the AWA, he worked up to title matches with Vern Gagne in the early 70s. It was interesting with Jack because one of his biggest breaks, if you want to call it that, came when he was aligned with Black Jack Mulligan. The irony of that is that Bob Windham, Mulligan's real name, he was in the AWA in 1969 and 70 getting some training with Vern and all of the other wrestlers as a rookie, as Bob Windham. And there were countless wrestling cards where Lanza wrestled Windham. And they became good friends. They worked well together. And when Windham left in 1971 to go to Vince McMahon Sr., it was Sr. that dubbed him Blackjack Mulligan, brought in this whole new character and you know, Bob Wyndham was forgotten about, never existed anymore. But then, of course, the Blackjacks hooked up later. There is an interesting story that when uh, Senior wanted to dub uh, Wyndham as Blackjack, Bob Wyndham actually called Jack Lanza and asked him if he had any issues with that at all, because he was going to be a carbon copy lookalike as far as, you know, how they dressed and worked in the ring. And Jack gave him his blessings. And then, of course, it was just a, a year or two later when they hooked up together as a team in the Bruisers group 
the WWA and became champions there along with Bobby Heenan. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Better tag team uh, partner for Blackjack Lanza. Was it Blackjack Mulligan or Bobby Duncan? I liked I liked uh, Mulligan a lot better. Okay. I, I always felt uh, Duncan is Duncan is great. I mean, he I liked him with Stan Hansen when they were a, a team short lived, but I thought they were better together. But uh, Mulligan and Lanza really, really worked well together. They they understood how to work the tag teams in the day where you cut off that ring and you keep your opponent, uh, you know, with the referee not seeing you double teaming him and pushing the baby face out of the ring so he can't tag out. And they, they really worked well together. They went down to Texas, uh, Lanza and Mulligan did, in 1975-76. Jack Lanza won the America's title down there very briefly, which was Fritz von Erich's title at the time. He was the owner of the company down there. And uh, the Blackjacks worked together second to each other down there. But uh, they worked down there. And then, of course, they went to uh, Vince McMahon Sr. still and worked as the Blackjacks and got the WWE. Uh, it was still WWWF when the Blackjacks were there in uh, the mid-70s. And they had a brief run there. I mean, they were champs not very long, but they were champions. So really, wherever the two of them went, they did well and uh, made money. You talk to Chicago fans here in the AWA, which and Chicago was a combination of AWA, WWA, because both Bruiser and Ganya would bring in the guys from their respective territories. And you talk to fans today, the battles that the Blackjacks had with the Crusher and the Bruiser in Chicago at the International Amphitheater, uh, bloodbaths in Chicago, they were rabid fans for uh, for blood in their matches. I never understood it, but they did like it. So, but they did. I, really- I believe I believe the "We Want Blood" chance originated oh, yeah. it, in Chicago. It was real. It yeah. was real. And anytime the Crusher and the Bruiser, and you have to go back too and realize that the Crusher and the Bruiser, still in the early seventies were pretty close to the vintage crusher bruiser that they were known as when they were such good heels before turning baby, you know, not the cartoonish characters that they morphed into as the seventies went on. And we got into the eighties when uh, both of those guys were, you know, beyond their glory days and just getting by in heaven and, you know, having wrestlers really put them over to make them still look good. But uh, crusher and bruiser, the uh, the blackjacks. That's one of the great feuds for both WWA and AWA. So, George, as we begin to wrap up this segment, and again, we're always very appreciative of your time and your uh, your historical knowledge here. Blackjack Lanza. One of the things uh, that Barry and I uh, were discussing was how well he was thought of as a road agent for the WWF for for so many years. And you know, we hear tales of guys that were road agents that perhaps were thought of as uh, kind of stooges for the front office. Uh, nothing would uh, happen that uh, Vince wouldn't hear about from uh, certain guys, but black Jack Lanza or, you know, just Jack Lanza black was Lanza. a guy that was, was always well thought of by the boys as a road agent. So as we close out, just tell us what you remember about Jack Lanza, the man uh, that we now have lost. Well, I think the, the thing to remember about that whole road agent thing is, yeah, it, it has the stories where some of the guys were stooges. and But you have to remember that the road agents 
primary job, regardless of who it was, whether it was Lanzar, Grizzly Smith, and Rene Goulet did it for a while. There were others, Pat Patterson. I mean, there was all kinds of guys that were road agents over there. But their their job, for lack of a better term, was they were to make sure that the boys were behaving while they were on the road and, and not getting into trouble and that sort of thing and making sure that the cards went well. So Jack, he wasn't the stooge type guy. I mean, he, I'm sure he reported things that needed to be reported, but he, he did what he was asked to do and he kept things under control when he was in charge and the guys respected him in his wrestling days. He was one of those guys that you very seldom heard anybody say something bad about that. They didn't want to work with Jack Lanza or he was tough to work with, or you can't trust him or any of that. You never heard any of that. He pretty much uh, was uh, always doing what he was asked to do. And really, I've never heard anybody say that there were any disagreements with promoters. He wasn't a guy that was complaining about his payoffs or leaving a territory, you know, just up in a huff and leaving like some guys did back in the day. And I'm sure do today, but uh, he, he had a good reputation and he was well-liked. Um, Greg Gagne speaks well of him. And, you know, Greg and Jim Brunzel, they were frequent opponents for Lanza and Duncombe. Lanza with other partners as well. And uh, Crusher Bruiser, of course, made a lot of money with him. So I, I've only heard good about him. And he, he was out of the business for a lot of years. Like any time, you know, he was 86 years old. That The older I get, that seems a lot younger. But I think he, he earned his respect in, in the business that uh, he was a good hand. And, and uh, Bobby Heenan said that he was a good hand. So I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, and uh, just in closing this segment, uh, Barry, as you and I are wont to do, and we have uh, these uh, situations befall uh, where a legend in the wrestling business has passed. George, if you will join us as we raise an adult beverage to the memory of Black Jack Lanza. I can do that. Absolutely. So, Barry, let's just quickly talk about the AEW Dynamite episode from this past week. Uh, lots of uh, stuff on there that it was worth mentioning. but. I will say, you know, there, there are people out there that criticize wrestling sometime for uh, its broad humor, for trying to interject, uh, you know, a situation that's funny in there. Sometimes it works. A lot of times it doesn't. But, Barry, let's talk about that fucking MJF video. How great was that thing? It was – I've never seen anything ever like it, I don't think, Jeff. I think it was – I think the way they did it with that announcer – was just on who was the announcer any idea who i don't was? know but man he was wow the way that he used his inflections uh you know for those of you that that didn't it was you know uh i was trying to think right off the top of my head what was the funniest skit uh you know okay i'll, I'll throw a couple out there jimmy garvin and sunshine working on david von eric's ranch that's that one. Was great yep. okay then uh Butch Reed and Buddy Landell's workout video. Okay, where you know Buddy's going, oh, I'm gonna tell you right now, I've done uh, that lap in uh, two seconds less than Butch. You're doing great, Butch. You're doing great. I did it a quick, couple minutes quicker than that. You know that was very funny. It's not. Then you have the stuff in the WWE that you know uh, is just really like over the top. You know, like it's usually 
it's usually something that Vince wanted to do, and it, it comes off as just too broad and too ridiculous. I, you know, I'm sure there have been funny stuff. I mean, the, Jimmy Cornette had had plenty of funny stuff in in Smoky Mountain. I remember when they went in search of the uh, the uh, who is it the, the Heavenly Bodies, like one of the very first episodes. Uh, that was very funny. Jimmy had some great comedy stuff that he would do, but. The MJF stuff where they're showing a video of him going back to his old high school stadium. He's wearing the letterman's jacket and the guy that is narrating it is talking about all his accomplishments. You know, he was the all state middle linebacker and he broke the county record for tackles. Uh, you know, he uh, he's the captain of the all male acapella group uh, known as the acapellas, you know, uh, and then uh, he was all state choir or tenor two. And then he says, uh, you know, and yes, I know what you're thinking. He pulled in so many chicks. It was nuts, bro. <laughs> I mean, Barry, I was fucking dying. It was great. It 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 was just so well done. And I got to say, MJF is, uh, I, and look, we're not the, I think he's the greatest heel in years as far as what he's doing. But CM Punk, and I, uh, so I, I was uh, really excited to see CM Punk come to AEW. I felt up until the Eddie Kingston stuff that his return had been extremely lackluster. And we had discussed this. We discussed it on air. But CM Punk the other night, clearly from a, a promo standpoint, he has got a lot left in his tank. And the future of CM Punk is as a heel because uh, this being in Long Island, if you haven't seen it, MJF was being portrayed as the babyface, and CM Punk cut a promo trashing Long Island, trashing the Islanders. Oh, trashing- oh, oh. Let, let's get back to that in the middle. Of- so he's just putting the fucking verbal boots to the New York Islanders. And, you know, Barry, I don't know if you know this. I used to know somebody who was a, a big Islanders fan. And... This particular person I know watches AEW because of his connection to someone else that may be involved in AEW, who I won't mention. So just think that that particular person had to sit there and listen, if he didn't turn the TV off at least, or fast forward to this segment, listen to someone completely shit on the New York Islanders. And I got to tell you, I fucking love that. And I loved when my wife was was sitting there and she turned to me and said, hey, isn't that uh, someone that used to know? Isn't that his favorite team? And I went. Yes, it is. Ugh. When did when did this person live in Long Island? Uh, never. Okay, just making sure. Okay, so because there is a, a team where he lives currently, but which is not Long Island. But uh, CM Punk, so shitting on the Islanders, shitting on the Islanders fans, and then he had some great lines, Jeff, where he was shitting all over MJF, and then saying, "If you support this guy," he was shitting on those people. So he shit on everybody in that arena. And here's, and it's much like, like the Brian Danielson thing. You know, I, I wasn't sure what would happen the following week after Brian Danielson essentially turned heel in Virginia. It's Adam Page. It's the hangman. And he's from Virginia. So, of course, he's going to shit all over it. But Danielson kept it up. I, I know that Punk is not going to keep that up next week because MJF is way too strong of a heel. But it did say. CM Punk needs to wrap this up with MJF over the next couple of months. They could have a great promo, and CM Punk needs to turn heel, Jeff. Well, and the, the problem is there's there's so many guys that need to turn heel, so they need to have some strong baby faces also. Uh, I will mention one other thing from the MJF video that I really liked, and this is for our boy Chris, uh, is when the, the announcer said, uh, 
you haven't was it something like you haven't lived until you've driven on the LIE while blasting Billy Joel. <laughs> that was a funny line. So the other two segments or yeah. three segments that I wanted to mention that I enjoyed. Number one, because I always crap on women's wrestling, I will say that I enjoyed the match with Riho and Jamie Hader. There was a moment where Jamie Hader gave Riho a backbreaker across the knee, like the Billy Robinson backbreaker. And I literally thought she had broken her spine. That that's how stiff it looked. Uh, it was uh, really one of the better women's matches in this country that I've seen in a long time. The Cody and Sammy Guevara segment where he says, quote, good luck, kid. What'd you think of that? So that, I mean, subtle. Oh, subtle yeah. That's what's great about it. So here's the funny thing. And tell me if I'm wrong about this, too, because I think we've seen this over the years. And this is professional wrestling, of course. So we've seen this multiple times. But. Cody is universally disliked as a babyface by the hardcore smart fans that are on the internet that listen to podcasts that have podcasts and by the people in the arenas, which is a lot of the same people, actually. At the same time, once Cody turns heel, I think he's going to be so much more fun. And I think you can see it. And that was really nice. That sly little smirk on his face. And uh, I, I could see Cody winning the belt in two weeks. Fans completely shitting on that win because Guevara's like, and I could see Cody complete doing a full heel turn. I, I think he has to do it. I think to save a career, Cody has got to do it. Yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to mention was when they had uh, Ethan Page and Scorpio Sky uh, up in the uh, up in the rafters and Ethan Page's comment about how, well, apparently you got to be a executive vice president or an EVP to get yourself yeah. a title shot. That was pretty funny. I like when they do that uh, stuff that's uh, cutting a little close to the bone there. That's the kind of shit I always like when it gets uh, a little close to being uh, a shoot, Mary. That's when wrestling's fun. I think it's understanding your audience, too. and look. Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. AEW audience is a smart audience. Love them or hate them. They, these are the same people on the Internet that are aware uh, of, with a lot of stuff. They know that Cody's behind the scenes. So I like that. I, I, as I watch AEW and certainly some of this stuff, I should say some of the matches at times can be, but they've gotten a lot better lately. They, they've really weeded out, I think, a lot of the issues. But the promo work is, I believe, the best promo work in all of professional wrestling in this country, at least. I, I can't speak for other countries. I don't think you're seeing anything else like it in WWE. It's a scripted forced promo that comes across as scripted and forced in AEW that whole shit with Eddie Kingston and CM Punk and now Punk and MJF appears to be legit right like you yeah. oh, we no, know no. it's not yeah. but it does so that is that's where I find AEW is really filling that the niche for me in professional wrestling Barry once again we want to give special props and mention of our sponsor this week. It's our friend Greg Klein and his book, The Paper Tigers. Oh, Barry, we are going, geez, it's over a hundred stinking years. That's incredible for this story uh, about baseball and some guys that were thrown into a situation that they weren't really prepared for, but made the best out of it. Greg, a great writer, and we want to encourage all those uh, listeners out there who are into stories about baseball, uh, old time stuff, to uh, check out this book and we'll post an Amazon link uh, to help uh, people that are looking into this kind of stuff. I know we've got a lot of people that are real baseball fans in our group, uh, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry on Facebook. And uh, this is the kind of thing right up their alley, Barry. 
It is too. And look out, we should say, Jeff, you're a huge baseball fan. I like baseball, but I mean, you're, you're at a different level and sweet Lou, sweet Lou, our scam likely our, our producer is also a huge baseball fan, but Jeff, I actually have a copy of the book and I want to read to you the back cover, uh, which is the, the, basically it's a paragraph, the synopsis of it's what nice that you uh, acquired the ability to read Barry. That's well, nice. you know, it's uh, the big word, a lot of schooling. I know. There is, and there's a couple of big words in here, but the good news, my kids are fairly bright, and they were able to help me and point it out. But hey, in the spring of 1912, weeks after the Titanic sunk, Ty Cobb climbed into the stands of New York's Hilltop Park and nearly beat to death a crippled fan who called him the N-word after American League President Ben Johnson, or Ben Ben Johnson— so you 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 knew that was Ban Johnson? Oh, I, yeah, I remember, yeah, I'm familiar with the how name. Would you, how would you know Ban Johnson, 1912, the, the commission? Yes, I know, you know baseball that? history. Jeez, though, but that's like, that's, I mean, you talk about, that's intense, Jeff. But anyways, Ban Johnson suspended Cobb. His Detroit Tiger teammates went on to strike to support him. Forced to field the team or else, Tiger manager Huey Jennings went on. Do you remember, do you know Huey Jennings' oh, nickname? Yeah. Yeah. What was his nickname? Uh, no, I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, you fucking knew Ben Johnson. I mean, <laughs> holy cow. Uh, apparently, it was Ia was his Ia. nickname. Ia. Uh, kind of like the old Hua. That, uh, yeah. But uh, any case, I digress. Huey Jennings went onto the streets of Philadelphia to field the team. The one-day ringers were dismissed as losers, but they were also the luckiest guys to ever be major leaguers. The Paper Tigers by Greg Klein tells the previously untold story of the one-day pro baseball players and the baseball legends that caused the tale to transpire. I mean, if that doesn't hook you in right there and you don't say to yourself, even if you just like baseball, even if you have a passing interest, this is a really unique story here, Jeff, where, you know, Ty Cobb, and Ty Cobb, you had mentioned uh, last week, here was a guy, here was with a hair hair trigger temper, a guy, you know, he had some issues, obviously, but uh, this is a fascinating story. And as you pointed out, this goes back over a hundred years now. Yeah, I just I was just sitting there as you were describing uh, that paragraph. I was thinking, like, you take a guy that's like a, a real big deal in baseball, okay? Uh, like, who won the MVP this year? Was it uh, Shohei Otani? Okay, think about the reaction that would happen now. In 2021, we're we're closing out the year here, Bear. But think of if somebody used a racial slur on Shohei Otani, who by all accounts, like just the nicest guy, okay, and Ty Cobb was not uh, viewed that way. But anyway, so if somebody used a slur, say an Asian slur to Shohei Otani, and if Shohei Otani knew what the guy was saying and went into the ring, or I'm sorry, went into the stands and literally started pummeling the guy who turned out to be crippled. Okay. Oh. Like, what do you think that social media would do to Shohei Otani? Yeah, and, and let's be honest. At that point, he'd be done as well, right? He'd I mean, be going back to Japan to play baseball. Yeah, it'd be over in the States yeah, for him. Yeah. Absolutely. So anyway, so yeah, uh, our, we will post a link again to Greg's book. It is hey, called let, me, the, let me tell them where they can get oh, it, please, Jeff. So you can go to Amazon and get this, but you oh, can also but. go to Greg directly. And if you do go to Greg directly, he will personally sign this for you. He will put an inscription in. I'll tell you what I think is great, Jeff. The timing with this, we have Christmas is right around the corner. If you've got somebody in your life that is a a baseball fan, how cool that you can actually get this inscribed to the person that you're going to be giving the gift to. And at the same time, you can get a copy for yourself. Greg's 
email address. If you want to go to PayPal, you can contact him. It is JJ Havoc. That's J-J-H-A-V-O-K at AOL.com. It's only 30 bucks. And again, he will personally inscribe this to anyone that you want. This is an excellent book. Order your copy now. Yeah, there are some other people that uh, that have written books that uh, if you contact them personally, we'll be happy to personally inscribe a book. I digress. I don't know who I'm talking about. But we want to encourage you to uh, patronage. Uh, it's easy for me to say. Uh, patron, what's the word? Patronage. Uh, uh, pa- fuck, patronize. Patronize. <laughs> Don't patronize me. Yeah, I'm not going to patronize you. I want you to go to this guy and fucking buy the book. Wow, I just really fucked up that. We probably should give Greg his money back for that. But anyway, we encourage you to uh, use people that are sponsors of our fine broadcast here and uh, go to them if you're a baseball fan, especially a fan of baseball history. And we encourage you to seek Greg out and purchase the book. So, Barry, as we wrap up this show, we want to say once again, uh, thanks to George Shire for joining us. Uh, a little discussion about Blackjack Linza and his great career, uh, not only inside the ring, but outside the ring uh, and the effect that he had on those. Uh, lot, lots of positive things out in social media after he passed away from people that worked with him about just how uh, helpful. And a lot of people, let's just say this, uh, in the WWE that worked as road agents were not really viewed very positively. Uh, Jack Lanza was someone, however, that was viewed positively, Barry. Yeah. And when you talk about that too, Chief J Strongbow is one of the guys that you hear a lot of bad about. Yeah. George uh, Steele was another guy that I heard a lot of bad things about also. Yeah. And look, if, if you're in a position, essentially your management at that point, look, of course, there's going to be people that dislike you. But with that, Jack Lanza did have a lot of respect from people. And, uh, you know, he was one of those guys every once a year in our CWF archives, Facebook group, we actually go ahead and we list guys that never worked Florida. And that's a very small list. Overall, blackjack Lons is one of those guys. I can't find even one single result that he worked a match in the state of Florida. Wow. Incredible. So, uh, you know, as we uh, did earlier, we raised an adult beverage, to the memory of Jack Lanza, uh, and, uh, his fine career and life. And uh, on that note, Barry, it's time to wrap up another episode of Breaking Kayfabe with Badrin and Barry. I will say on behalf of our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, out in the Bay Area, my co-host, Barry Rose. Uh, I am Jeff Bowdrin. They call me The Booker. And we are a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. <laughs> <laughs>